Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Dedu, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey folks, Oliver here. This week I interviewed Laura Fox, Lyft's general manager for Citybike in New York. Laura has an incredible background with stints in Qatar, working on Mexico City's planning regulations, time at Sidewalk Labs, and is the editor of one of the best books on urban planning and economics I've found called Order Without Design by Alain Batard. All of which we discuss before digging into the nitty gritty details of City Bike in New York City. I loved this episode. Laura is an amazing thinker and I think you'll get a lot out of listening to her. In terms of news, it's been a big week of lifts, bike share systems, speaking of them, uh, in addition to City Bike in New York hitting the 100 million ride mark, which we talk about with Laura in this episode, Bike Town in Portland, Oregon also announced a major expansion, which includes adding 1,500 e-bikes to its fleet, and Divi in Chicago unveiled plans to add coverage to the far south side. These dock systems are growing from strength to the strength, for reasons that we'll dig into on this episode. And wider news... Walmart CEO Doug McMillan complained that we are sold out of bicycles, we just can't keep them stocked, and that adult bicycles are starting to sell out as parents started to join their kids in a recent earnings call. This is reflective of the wider industry. There's going to be substantial supply chain shortages for the coming months, I think, in the micromobility space. We've got some friends doing research on this, and I'm looking forward to hopefully having them on the show soon to look at the supply chain dynamics for micromobility. Uh, for a bit of local news, at least for me, uh, New Zealand announced that it is going to remove minimum car parking requirements nationally, making it one of the first countries in the OECD to do so. As long-time listeners of the show will know, parking is one of the biggest gripes we have about road space and land use allocation. We're seeing a lot of cities around the world adopt these standards, Edmund and Alberta being the most recent before New Zealand. And I think this is going to be a trait that continues to pick up steam. Also just want to say as well that we are in discussions with some sponsors but always interested to talk to more. So if you have anybody who's interested in sponsoring the podcast, please DM me on Twitter or get connected via the website. And with that, here's Laura. And welcome back to Micromobility. I have with us today Laura Fox. How are you doing, Laura? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I, I am very excited for this conversation. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, look, I, I thought probably the best thing to start off with is just uh, if you can take us through not only what you're doing today, but actually I think you've got such an interesting backstory that I really want the audience to have a chance to uh, listen to that. So maybe if we start right back uh, in the beginning and kind of get through your, your career journey to, to, to Lyft and City Bike. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, it's a long story, so, so maybe I'll give some of the highlights. Um, and, and then I can go into the longer bits. Uh, you know, I grew up on the south side of Chicago in a transportation desert. I've lived in cities my entire life. I've actually never lived outside of a city. And so feel incredibly connected to the mission of improving quality of life in cities. And I think earlier in my career, really thought that that was going to be connected to culture and how cultural institutions can affect placemaking. 
Um, but I think that, you know, the story has, has changed from there and kind of led to a really um, deep and varied kind of urbanist career. So um, happy to go into that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and what, what led me here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the, the part that I thought was so, so interesting was this, we overlapped in Qatar. How did you get yeah. to Qatar? <laughs> yeah, it's a crazy story. So as part of this interest in how cultural institutions affect place, you know, I was first in Chicago working with a lot of small nonprofits. I was on boards. I was doing a lot of writing about how culture affects place, how it affects people, how it allows people to express self-collective identity in, in ways that are really you know, nearly impossible in, in other mediums. And I kept reading about Qatar as this really interesting place that was trying to shape national strategy around culture. And I thought, that's incredible. Like, this is a place who wants to, from, you know, earliest stages of its development, think about a creative economy, build that in, think about culture, think about placemaking. Let me figure out a way to get there. <laughs> um, didn't know anyone there. Um, so message someone on LinkedIn, as, as all good <laughs> um, career hustlers do. Um, I ended up um, in Qatar just about a year later after that first LinkedIn message. And um, the experience in, in Qatar was really transformative from a career perspective for someone who had never really grown up traveling to be able to see not only Qatar, but the rest of the world. Um, but it was also transformational when I started thinking about what's the impact that I want to have in cities and is this the one? Um, because when you walk around Qatar, as I'm sure you know, I'd be interested to hear your experience, right? There's no sidewalks, there's no subways, no, no buses, um, no affordable housing and, and really no human rights. And, and so when you think about what are the things that make a city great, those are pretty fundamental. So you can have great culture, but if you don't have those foundational elements, um, you don't end up with the kind of place that you and I would call that, that thriving, exciting livelihood of a city. Yeah, so I, I lived in Qatar uh, 2012 to 2015 and um, found it an, an amazing experience because in some ways it was such a, uh, when I arrived, I think the population was about 1.6 million. When I left, it was 2.2. And yeah. it was just this very things move fast. Yeah, yeah, things moving very really fast. And the entire, you know, you could feel it in just the way that the city was developing. It was just scrambling to keep up yeah. with its infrastructure. Um, and so there were, you know, the, the the way that they did it obviously was just to build heaps and heaps of roads because petrol was so cheap and uh, yeah. uh, um, uh, cars were cars were incredibly cheap as well. Um, and then they've kind of retrofitted and are now trying to build subways and other other kind of means of being able yeah. to around from a transport perspective. And also it has such an incredible, um, you know, climate, which is in the summers, it was preposterously hot, you know. <laughs> preposterously hot. It was, um, I mean, it was, it really, <laughs> you know, and, and yet, and so we ended up, I mean, certainly for, from my side, I ended up just driving everywhere and there was no option yeah. for, for anything. And I remember reading about e-bikes and e-mopeds at the time and how they were exploding in China and thinking like, yeah, I'd love for that to be the case in Qatar. But it's just, yeah. it, you know, to your point around culture, um, the built form, so influences how uh, the people interact, right? Which is if you're all in cars and that's the only way you can get around and it's so hot, oppressively hot. Um, and then the only places, the only public places that you can go for a good chunk of the year are the malls. And mm -hmm. it just influences such a weird kind of culture um, of, of how really? people interact, yeah. Yeah. Well, you'll laugh. I was um, the only person that I knew who didn't have a car in Qatar. So I would walk from my apartment complex to the museum's authority tower, which 
wasn't far. It was probably a mile and a half to two miles, but in that kind of oppressive heat. And I would be walking and friends would pull over to the side of the road and honk and say, like, are you crazy? <laughs> what are you doing walking here? You should be driving. <laughs> um, get in my car. And I'd be like, I'm, I'm good. Um, because yeah. to your, exactly to your point, it's really hard to get to know a place when you're in a car, right? Because you're going by quickly. And in a city like Qatar, like, things are structured so that there's, like, fancier parts and not nice parts. And it's really nice. It's really easy to drive from one fancy part to another fancy part without having to grapple with, you know, what's, what's the real reality that's driving and building a place like Qatar. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, cool. All right. So, so you were in Qatar and then uh, you got to go and uh, head back to New York. Talk, talk, talk us through that. Yeah. So I decided when I was there, you know, to have this bigger commitment to other urban principles and went to NYU for my MBA because they had an urbanization project in their business school, which was the only one after months of research I was able to find. I really wanted that combination of hard skills of the MBA with the kind of urbanist perspective that maybe something more like a planning degree could have delivered. Um, and so while I was at NYU, um, one, being immersed in New York City as a great thriving city, but second, working with the urbanization project on projects around the world from the UAE to, um, you know, Vietnam to Mexico and Mexico City. And, and probably the most impactful of those projects um, was the one in Mexico City where we worked with their housing authority to look at how they can actually incentivize affordable housing in the city. And I think one, one of the things that was fascinating about that experience to me is that really getting inside the minds of a, a planning department, you know, planning departments are really well intentioned in how they set regulations, right? They, they want to have affordable housing in their cities. They want to have livability and high quality of life, but they oftentimes don't have the tools to be able to project out into the future. How with the policies that I'm setting today, how can I actually achieve that? And so with Urbanization Project, I got to work with someone named Alain Berteau, who has become a big part of my story over time and happy to talk more about him. I have, um, I, I'm sitting here with this <laughs> book. I was so excited, nice. which, we, which we get, because I've been reading, I mean, rereading uh, it. And uh, for, for, for anybody who's interested, I'll link to it in the show notes. But um, Devin Zugel has started doing a podcast with Alain, which is amazing. Him and his wife <laughs> talking about their, their story of being there. They're amazing, um, and I would recommend to anyone hearing that because he's one of the smartest urbanists I've ever met. He worked for the World Bank um, for many years, um, and he's both been called the Indiana Jones of urban planning as well as the Forrest Gump of planning for his ability <laughs> to be at these amazing moments of, of history, right? When Russia's opening to a market economy, China's opening to a market economy, um, kind of being in Central America during major transformations uh, in the public sector there. Um, his first role as a planner was in Yemen. Mm -hmm. um, so he's, he's both a- Haiti. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> They've been it's everywhere. Crazy. They've been everywhere. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think, you know, he is such an incredible person to learn from, an amazing mentor. He and his wife are like family to my husband and I, like now many years later from that project, but we're so incredibly instrumental in saying, you know, one of the things that's broken in urban planning today is that the fields of urban planning and like urban economics and urban technology are, are not connected, right? And so Alon has spent his career bridging 
in particular, you know, urban planning, urban planning, and urban economics. And so in that project for Mexico City, we actually built uh, myself and two other classmates, uh, Craig Johnson, David Barstani, both incredible people. Um, we built out a large financial model to help Mexico City understand the impacts of the regulations they set. So if you change your FAR ratio, if you change how far back your homes need to be from the street, or if you change the number of stories that a building can be, or all these multiple regulations that can be really overlapping, what's the actual outcome on the housing market from a private sector developer perspective? Like how, how can you get a private sector developer to be able to make money by building affordable housing so that you as a city can achieve your objectives, but you're not having to figure out how to create a bunch of tax revenue or incentives. Like this is a really a market-driven incentive structure. And that was an incredible project to work with them on and, you know, seeing Alon in action as well in terms of his guidance and, and working with the public sector at that level, as well as, you know, Mexico City ended up changing its regulations as a result of being able to see that model and, and toggle different regulations and understand those impacts rather than, you know, making a change today, but not seeing those impacts 10 years from now. Yeah, amazing. And that, at that point, I guess, is that when you started writing uh, the book with him? Yeah, so Alan had been working on, he, it's, he's an incredible storyteller, so I won't try to emulate him, but he'd been working on this book for 17 years. It's older than his oldest, I think, grandniece or nephew. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Coincides with one of their birthdays and, you know, it had been evolving, you know, right after I left NYU, I was working in consulting and working on projects for groups like Bloomberg Philanthropies or building kind of mobility startups with larger transportation groups. Uh, but on the weekends, I was working with Alan on his book. And yeah, he, it was an incredible project in that he was probably about halfway done when we started working together. We sat down, set a schedule, <laughs> and then just had a series of incredible conversations, I would say, for the next year and a half about these ideas, how they had shaped over the course of his career. And those conversations were usually had after we would go to a museum and then be having lunch together in the museum cafe. <laughs> oh, so so, so for, for anybody who doesn't understand what we're talking about here, the book is called Order Without Design, and it talks about the sort of intersection of urban planning and urban economics and, and the way that cities emerge really around markets, and which is such a kind of different framing for urban planning than I think is oftentimes taught. Um, Maybe yeah. you can do a better, better job of explaining it than I can, but yeah, that's what I got out of it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, Alan thinks about cities as labor markets, right? Like what is the function of a city? And a city has, has many different functions, but in large part, it's meant to like support a labor market and, and people having jobs. And so for a field like transportation, what's the function of a transportation network? transportation network is meant to get people to the largest number of jobs across a city in the shortest amount of time, <laughs> yes. right? And, and, and so with those kinds of functions in mind, like how do you think about that? And how do you allow people, right, and market-shaped cities, not just kind of grand plans that a few people had decided on? Yeah. Yeah, All right, we're going to come back to this, I'm sure, as we start yeah. talking about other things. Um, great. So then you went on to Sidewalk Labs. which So talk us through, through that experience. Yeah, I, I'd been fascinated by Sidewalk since I heard about, you know, them being announced and <laughs> Dan Doctoroff, you know, who had been the deputy mayor of New York City, going to lead them and be their CEO and creating this team of planners, economists, technologists, and others to solve really big, challenging urban problems. 
So I went to Sidewalk to help lead their master in innovation and development plan for the city of Toronto, where we were looking at if you were to think about, you know, designing a more livable city that really created high quality of life and use really sustainable economics when it came to kind of real estate, when we think about energy, you know, what do you have to do to be climate positive from a sustainability standpoint? How do you dramatically reduce like urban GHG through different transportation modes and different building designs? How can you rethink buildings so that, you know, the time to build them is shorter and the cost to build them is lower so you can actually innovate within the building space with more sustainable materials and across a wide range of different topics to bring innovation into the urban sector in a way that, you know, is usually really challenging. And so, yeah, I, I loved my time there. I felt like it was almost a, a master class in thinking about urbanist principles from those three different lenses, planning, economy, and technology. And it was a really tough place to leave, I'll say, but the thing that drew me away is the role that I'm in right now, which is the general manager of City Bike. You know, City Bike, for me, I've been a cyclist for, you know, since early in my career, I have been a city bike rider since I moved to New York in 2013. And I found it to be a transformational way to, to ride around the city. And so it brought me to thinking about how do I take all these urbanist ideas that I've been thinking about and working about over time and bring them into a really practical program that can you know, dramatically, you know, improve someone's like quality of life in terms of getting to work, you know, think about sustainability metrics in terms of mode shift, and deal with kind of a real living business and, and a great public-private partnership with the city of New York. Yeah, amazing. So I hadn't, I wasn't super, I mean, I, I obviously I've heard of City Bike. It was one of the, the kind of the earliest bike shares in the US and I followed it. And we've interviewed Tarani Duncan, who was uh, one of the early employees of City Bike on the podcast. But um, I, it would be really useful for you to kind of take us through um you know, how is it set up its relationship to New York DOT and then the Lyft and now and, and, and how that kind of, how that's worked? Because I think you're actually, you're the first docked organization that we've dealt with. And I think docked has quite a different. Oh yeah. Um, and we should talk setup. about docked. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah we will. We yeah. will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, no, talk, talk, talk us through kind of the top line, how big you are, how many stations, et cetera, but then also as well, that, that kind of deeper, what's the relationship with the city, et cetera. Yeah, so we actually just had a really big milestone. We just had um, 100 million rides over the course of City Bike's history. So that's, that's incredible. City Bike launched in 2013. We now have over 1,000 stations, over 15,000 bikes, have a great network across the city of New York. And we have a mandate with the city of New York and with Lyft to basically embark on a $100 million expansion over the next four years where we're doubling the size of our service area. And so we joke that every day we'd be expanding um, because, <laughs> um, because we're just, you know, every day we're right now we're focused on Harlem and, and Bronx, um, but next will come Brooklyn, Queens, further into the northern tip of Manhattan. So really exciting time for City Bike to, to be embarking on that growth. And the history of City Bike is actually grounded in that kind of strong public-private partnership. The, the idea of City Bike came out of the Department of Transportation. I don't want to pick a year, but Jeanette Sadek Khan, you know, really wanted to think about bringing a model of bike share as she had seen in London to the city of New York. But to make it something that was sustainable, self-financing, you know, run by a private sector operator, and making that work. And I think you see the, 
the tenors of what a strong start and, and grounding in that public partner, uh, public private partnership then in the way that we operate today. You know, it's a, it's a long-term reliable partnership, you know, and our partnership with DOT is central to, you know, the role that City Bike can play in helping people get around. And I guess I said, said in another way, City Bike wouldn't be as successful as it is today without, you know, both, you know, City Bike as well as New York City and Department of Transportation being so dedicated. And so in terms of the commercial arrangement, is it entirely publicly owned and then privately run and run as a contract or is it a joint, like when you say it's a, a PPP, is it, is it um, what's the sort of breakdown of that? Yeah, so it's entirely privately owned and operated. And then our contract with the city, you know, has a number of service level agreements that dictate, you know, the type of service that, you know, we should be providing to, to fulfill our contract with the city. But, you know, across that, functionally, we, we really act in a, in a deeper partnership. So talking about this, this big expansion that we're embarking on, you know, the Department of Trans, we will, you know, buy the equipment, we put down the equipment, um, you know, we work with um, some station siting groups, but the DOT really has an overall station siting framework. So how do you build a really successful bike share network in, in New York City? Um, guides a lot of those siting, has created the principles for how to think about siting and works with community boards, city council members and others to, to really think about the political side of that process. Um, so that's, that's one of the areas where our partnership, I would say, is, is even deeper than, than other areas. Yeah. One of the things that I, I found really uh, interesting is how in some ways um, that what well, the pricing in general for the product has been set mm. um, because it really is um, incentivized and skews towards a sort of you buy a year long subscription uh, and that's how you typically consume the product versus something which like the jump or the uh, jump bikes or the lime scooters and they're sort of they typically have far more expensive pricing and um, flexibility. Um, yeah. is, that, is that a set by the city? I mean, do they set your pricing? Are you kind of inside of that agreement or is it, you, is it a negotiation or you guys get to set that yourselves? Yeah, um, you know, for our core membership product, you know, membership, um, to your point, is, is a policy objective of, a, of the city and, you know, a business objective of ours. And one of the reasons why that is, when you think about it from a policy perspective, is you know, when we see someone who's a member versus someone who's a casual rider, and we think about how do we get you to not, you know, drive a car or, or do like take less sustainable modes of transportation. Um, a member will take on average about 55 to 60 rides per year versus a casual rider will take about 2.5 rides per year. Right. And so when we think about this, um, how do we transform, you know, mode mode shift how do we think about sustainability in our cities like what's kind of the overall core mission of bike share really getting people to be a member is a core part of that um, and so the department of transportation does kind of regulate our overall pricing we're able to increase by a small percentage point per year but in general like that membership kind of push is really attractive because being a city bike member is less than say buying a subway pass for two months. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I am so curious for, for you, like how does, how do, how mentally does DOT think about that? Because the, you know, do they want to position with, they, with their pricing, right? They get to determine the sort of where it sits itself in the market. Um, and um, 
okay, so the trips are probably not as long as a subway trip, but how would they think about that pricing? Do they have models themselves that they that are quite sophisticated in terms of thinking about what the use case of this particular vehicle is relative to other transport options in the city? Yeah, I think that a lot of the initial pricing structures were sent with some of the initial contracts and, and a lot of those pricing mechanisms were used. So thinking about comparisons to other transportation methods, thinking about what's really the cost to operate the system, you know, what's the break even. One of the things that I deeply appreciate about New York City's DOT is that they really care about us being, you know, a break even business, <laughs> yes. right? It, it's, it's not something where, you know, New York City DOT is ever looking for us to, to go under as a business to accomplish something crazy. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the kind of thinking that was put into pricing, you know, other kind of day-to-day conversations is, is incredibly thoughtful from a programmatic perspective. Yeah. Um, the reason I bring it up is, is we've been doing some analysis here in New Zealand with the Ministry of Transport and we've been calculating what the average cost per kilometre of all the different modes are in, in our overall transport system. And I've been working with them on the micromobility um, one. And the thing about micromobility as a shared service, especially, is that it's actually a really high cost. Like the provision of cost per kilometre is actually really high relative to, for example, ride hailing or um, private car use or even public transport. And um, and when Horace and I have talked about it in the past, you know, he's made the point that like, look, these are actually the most expensive miles. They're the short trips. And mm-hmm. when you think about it, those are the trips that you'd want to spend the most on because they're the most useful. They're the most frequent. They're actually probably the most, they have the most utility in the sense of you're going from one place to another place in a highly dense environment and a, a micromobility trip through a dense neighborhood like in New York would actually be priced, should be priced higher than, for example, a taxi if you can get from one place to another um, yeah. faster than but any others. Potentially, there have been a lot of studies too about how much faster city bike is in, say, areas like Midtown Manhattan. You know, it's up to seven minutes faster to get across Midtown on a city bike than to take a taxi. For the exact reason that you're speaking to, high congestion, you know, streets that can accommodate the number of vehicles that want to ride on them, but having some really great crosstown bike lanes that allow you to get from point A to point B even faster. And, and I, I think that if you were truly kind of operating on, a, you know, just using the economics and pricing dynamics perspective, you probably would try to price those trips higher, knowing mm-hmm. that, you know, there's a convenience and a speed factor. But I think when we're thinking about how do we achieve that overall objective of that mega mode shift, <laughs> as opposed to just getting you to switch one or two of those rides, I think that's where thinking about the affordability of the overall base membership price is really important. Yeah, yeah. Um, awesome. Well, look, I, I'd love to um, the talk and unpack a little bit around docked versus undocked um, because, yeah, we, as I sort of mentioned, we've got um, we've really only yeah. talked to dockless uh, providers or operators yeah. today. Um, what are the kind of interesting things that, that we should maybe think about or be uh, know about about a, a docked setup? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, dock setups have a lot of advantages. I think we with New York City DOT really think that a dock system is the right solution for New York City too. And I think there's a couple different reasons for that. Um, you know, with docks, you can really design a network, getting to some of those principles that we talked about before. Like you're looking at designing a network that can, you know, go across the entire city and have some reliability to that. So that means that, that network is 
denser around transportation hubs, right? Like it provides great connection into neighborhoods. Um, you can get across the city faster and, and you know that you'll have a reliable way to do that because you have a, this kind of established infrastructure. Um, secondly, I, I think it really provides an effective use of public space, um, which is even more important in a city like Manhattan where you have so many people, <laughs> right? Uh, mm -hmm. um, or Brooklyn or Queens or the Bronx, like, um, you know, New York has teams of people and it's one of the things that makes living here so exciting, but one of the things that probably comes most to mind when you think about sidewalk access, sidewalk space, things like that. And so you can have this kind of orderly distribution that avoids street clutter, um, minimal interference with right away and sidewalks. So thinking about accessibility concerns and things like that. Um, the thing that really, I guess, excites me about um, doc systems though is the real changes that you see in commuter behavior getting back to that overall mission of wanting to to change kind of mode and, and think about mode shift mm -hmm. um you know in non in non-covid times and we can certainly talk about covid times um city bike sees dominant peaks and the am and the pm that correspond to commuting patterns and you know about 80 percent of ridership is occurring during those times when you look at markets that you know, are usually dockless, what you typically tend to see are that dockless products have higher ride volumes on weekends than weekdays. Some markets I've looked at see peaks like around lunchtime, so maybe more of like a lunchtime like convenience move. Mm -hmm. And all of those can have really great use cases, but I think with dock products, you can really see this, this big move towards solving, you know, how do you get people to take for that longest distance trip, probably throughout their day, their commute, you know, a sustainable mode. And I, I think there's probably, you know, other things as well, like um, long-term operator behavior. We, with a dock system, we have a bunch of fixed costs built into New York City. And, like, I think we'd be committed to being here anyway, yes. right? Uh, and I certainly am. But that means that as an operator, you're, you're investing in the city along with your, your city partner, right? And, and thinking about the long-term economics of the business. Yeah. The other... The, um... I completely agree in terms of the, the investment in the infrastructure. I also think as well that the node aspect of the, the network, which is, you know, mm -hmm. you can build bike lanes between two different nodes in a network. All of a sudden, one, it helps with the political acceptability of all of these different, you know, when you have to go and reallocate road space. Um, but the idea that, yeah, you end up with these kind of, um, you, if you know that there's going to be bikes in theory in one place, then it becomes far more, as you say, repeatable as a consumer behavior rather than having to go and open your app and go and search for the closest one and et cetera. You kind of just know that there's always going to be bikes there. Um, talk to me about load balancing because that's the one that everybody like, you know, <laughs> uh, the dock systems, yeah. this is why they didn't work. So this is why we have to have dockless, you know, you don't have the, you yeah. don't have the problems of load balancing. Um, is that, a, is that actually as big a problem as everyone says it is? How do you, how do you deal with it? Um, I think it's the, you know, biggest challenge of dock systems. Um, I think that it's also in, in part due to some of the things that you just mentioned, where there's a high expectation too, right, of providing this really high level of service and reliability. Um, I think it's probably one of the most challenging problems in Fleshare, but also one of the most interesting. <laughs> How do you match supply and demand of these really heavy objects across an entire city? Um, and so... I think one of the things that we see in New York, just to talk about the data, and then we can talk about all the stuff that we do to, to solve for that, but you know, ride patterns are, are really different and neighborhoods experience demand differently over different parts of the day, right? Um, and so to call out a couple of those things, I'd say that 
you know, during standard weekday commuting, um, there's typically more commuting uh, morning commuters than evening commuters. Don't really know why, but it, it's the case. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are more rides um, <laughs> in and out of. So, do you have an idea? Uh, well, no, I'm just thinking, it's like, what do I do at night? I go to the pub. That's what I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to dr drunkenly ride a bike home, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. one of my biggest hypotheses, too. Yes. <laughs> New York's a fun city after work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and Wellington, too. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other things are things like, you know, obviously, you know, when everyone's heading into the office, there are a lot more rides in essential business districts during weekdays than there are on weekends. Um, there's patterns like riders like to ride downhill rather than uphill, right? Yes. Don't we all? Yes. <laughs> um, and so that's just kind of a, a natural kind of balance to a system. And the network is spread across a city that has some flat areas, um, some hilly areas. And then we also find these really interesting odd aberrations across the city where some geographies just naturally have a lack of balance in their patterns. So one of the, um, you know, neighbor, a couple of the neighborhoods, I guess I should say that, that adhere to that are the Upper West Side of New York has a lot of bikes drained from the Upper West Side in the morning, but not many go back. Right. It's actually not, not too hilly to go up there. So, yes. you know, hypothesis is if up does uptown sound like uphill? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And then there's some neighborhoods in Brooklyn where we actually see bikes pooling over time, where a lot of bikes come in and then they don't leave. Um, and so, you know, the idea of like what is rebalancing and, and how, to, how to get around that is really solving for a lot of those kinds of natural imbalances that, that happen across the, the network. And how do we match, you know, a bike where someone wants it with, with that rider exactly when they want it. Yeah. Um, so we do a lot of things to, to solve for this. So as you can imagine, it's one of the kind of core kind of operational aspects of, of a doc system. And one of the ways that we analyze, you know, what are these patterns is through a core set of algorithms that recommend uh, where bikes should be picked up and where they should be moved. That's based on, you know, a complex series of variables looking back over time and then trying to forward project demand um, uh, and where it will be in the future. Um, in addition to kind of neighborhood level metrics and wanting to make sure that we have a certain number of bikes and docks in different neighborhoods. Um, and to deliver against those recommendations, we have a series of software tools and then a series of like very operational practices that, that, we, that we use. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's four main operational practices in general. First would be um, what are called bike valets. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of a, a, cheeky, <laughs> a cheeky name. <laughs> um, but essentially valets account for areas where there's a lot of demand on, on both ends. So imagine a, a central business district um, in the morning and the evening. There's a lot of people who are bringing bikes in in the morning and a lot of people who want to take bikes out. Um, you know, and, sorry, did I, did I mix that up? A lot of people who are bringing bikes in in the morning and then taking them out in the evening. Mm -hmm. um, and so valets essentially act to kind of stack the bikes to create a more condensed station footprint so we can accommodate many more bikes um, in those locations than would otherwise be allowed with the number of docks that we have. Um, you know, other things, um, you know, bike angels, uh, we have a program called Bike Angels where actually individuals across the network are incentivized to help, um, help us rebalance the system. Um, you sign up, um, you get points every ride, you get free ride codes, gift cards, uh, there's a leaderboard, 
um, in addition to like our undying affection. And yes. the <laughs> <laughs> that also, yes. Right, right. Yeah. It's not as well articulated always, but like no, any bike angel out there has my undying affection, certainly. Yes. Um, and then we also use for areas that have, um, you know, very unbalanced demand patterns, um, uh, bike trains for narrow neighborhood streets, which are essentially an electric bike with a carriage on the back that can accommodate about 16 bikes. So yeah, amazing. Imagine, yeah, imagine neighborhoods in, you know, East Village or some parts of Brooklyn where the streets are just too narrow to accommodate a vehicle. How do we service them? And then for trips that are, you know, very long, um, say going from the finance, taking bikes from the financial district up to the Upper West Side or others, we use a fleet of motorized vehicles um, and lift offsets, you know, you know, the carbon that is emitted by all those vehicles across a full vehicle fleet. Um, um, But it's still required as a tool to make sure that we can make those longer moves when we do have larger kind of system, uh, system issues. Yeah, nice. And then, um, so the part that I'm perhaps most excited to talk about in this entire interview is yeah. the impact of electrification, because this is something that I've been watching yeah. in the docked space, um, both with you and then with Bay Wheels in San Francisco, of um, adding e-bikes to these docked systems. And then obviously you've kind of got a, a like-for-like comparison at that stage of between what traditional bike share has done and the trip today and utilization, et cetera, and electric. Talk me through what you're seeing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really exciting to me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think um, in general, what I'm seeing is that um, people are really eager to use the product. Um, right now, e-bikes make up only about 3% of our fleet, but account for 8% of our rides. Right. And when you look at that on like a, you know, utilization or how many rides per bike per day basis, classic bikes are getting about, you know, four to five rides a day versus e-bikes are getting 10 rides a day. Um, So, so really just a dramatic difference in terms of how often people are choosing to, to ride an e-bike. And then secondly, that, you know, we're really making a difference on, you know, overall time of ride and and likely then distance. Um, And I think that this is the one that probably excites me the most, which is, you know, can you actually get more people to ride a bike if you provide an electric product where they're not sweating going over that bridge, right? And and they have like just a much easier ride. And so we're seeing um, much longer rides. Currently it's at about 34 minutes per ride for for an e-bike product versus an average of say about 12 12 minutes per ride on our our classic bikes. Um, And so I think that's the stuff that starts to get me because that means that, you know, when we think about, the kinds of urban design changes I would love to see in, in cities. And we talk about things like bicycle superhighways, bringing people from, you know, further in Queens, Brooklyn, and the Bronx into central business districts, you know, e-bikes can really have a, a dramatic difference on, on those rides, both in the future, as well as like the, the network of bike paths today. Yeah. Um, one, one thing I watched as the rollout happened of e-bikes in, in New York is that they were such a rare commodity that someone built yeah. a tracker just to yeah. work out where the e-bike, and if there was one that was in your neighborhood, you got a ping. And so people would run down to the, run down to the station and try and ride it, which I was like, oh, you know, I mean, we're among nerds here, but you know, it was really, um, it was, it was, it spoke yeah. to the demand and the desire for the product. 
that someone would even build something like that, right? That that would that they were such a kind of it was such a difference in, in experience that um, people have that much love for it, you know? Yeah, totally. That that's actually one of the things I love most about this role is like how passionate people are about the product, about bike share, about thinking through how to make it an easier experience for others in ways that we hadn't even thought about. Right? Like I love that someone did that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, some of its data is not exactly right, so it's on my list to to reach out and say like, hey, our GBFS works in this way. How do we make sure that you always have the right data? Yeah, and I think it's really motivating as we've had, you know, a few hundred e-bikes on the street to date, but we're going to start ramping to a few thousand by the end of the year. So I think I'm really excited to see, you know, how those patterns change. Do we end up getting more riders just because we have e-bikes and maybe they wouldn't have wanted to try biking before, but now with an easier solution, they would. How that continues to affect, you know, length of ride and, and especially when we get back to a normal commuting pattern what that means for the, the people who will take that longer ride to and from work. Yeah. Um, talk, are you able to talk through the cost differential between a standard bike and an e-bike and then how that is impacted? Because you don't, you don't cost differential in terms of how you charge for them, right? Like the pricing is the same for either, either bike. Yeah, we, we do actually um, charge slightly different rates. So oh, okay. right. e- e-bike products are more expensive. Just the hardware itself is more expensive. Um, you have motors, you have batteries, um, you have a bunch of electrical wiring, you have motor controllers. Um, and then you have, you know, a pretty complex operation on the street of swapping batteries to make sure that, you know, when you do run up to that e-bike, right, and you're hoping to get it, that it's, it's available for you to use and has a, has a full battery. Um, so our pricing structure is 10 cents a minute for members. And then if you're not a member, it's 15 cents a minute. So I think, you know, kind of abiding by the principles we talked about before, when we think about pricing, we want to be really affordable so that people are, you know, trying out this new mode in a way that, you know, isn't going to, to burn a hole in their pocket, but, but allow them to, to want to try again and again and build it into their daily routine. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm just doing basic calculations. If your average ride length is 34 minutes, then you're charging $3.40 for a ride. And the average speed would be, what, 15 kilometers an hour. So you're doing 7.5 kilometers or five miles or something like that, ballpark. I'm just trying to yeah. think of how you, how that would price co- compete with anything else that's in the market. Yeah, so, you know, and, yeah totally. $3.40 and is I, pretty cheap. It's pretty cheap. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of my, to, to that note, one of my favorite uh, Twitter images as I follow our Twitter feed often just to see rider feedback was uh, a bike advocate in New York stopped someone who was coming from a construction site and heading to Penn Station and was just like, why are you taking out an e-bike? And he was like, it's the cheapest way in town, 50 cents to get to Penn Station from here. <laughs> and I was like, I love that, yes. <laughs> right? Uh, and, and I think, you know, we've also taken into account, you know, if someone's coming from you know, Brooklyn, Queens, or the Bronx and taking a longer trip, and, and we know that they are, we've actually capped your price of an e-bike at $2 to make sure that it is an affordable solution for you um, if yep. you're taking a longer trip. And you're able, I, I mean, I guess because you've got a long-term exclusive contract, so you're not necessarily, you can make the longer-term investments and, and, that, um, and that. Do you, do you have a sort of um, expectation of ROI on the bikes with that level of utilization with that sort of pricing? Uh, I think every product has its own ROI and we're still yeah. figuring that out. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it comes with just like, how does it perform on the street? You know, how many repairs do you need to make per, per number of rides? Um, yeah. How often is it used? Like all of those different things come into the economics. Yeah. 
Um, cool. All right. Uh, well, look, I, I mean, in some ways, uh, the, the, I, I'm just looking at our time. Okay. Um, we're <laughs> so we're to cover. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I just, you know, the part I'm really, uh, if I'm, if I'm going to pick out the specific things, that's fine. Um, you know, the, the part I'm really excited about is, you know, with your background, um, you know, obviously working in Mexico, um, having looked at that intersection between urban form, transport, and and business models. What's the, you know, I find it interesting that you ended up in micromobility. Why was that the case? And how do you contextualize it in your wider discussion around how cities work and why, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the idea that you pointed out about Alain Walsh's uh, the idea of order without design and that cities are labor markets and really the transport system is sort of a functional way of people getting around to their jobs. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of those themes, I, I think really core to how cities work are how affordable is where you live and how affordable is it to get to like your job. <laughs> right. Um, and I think for me, one of the things that I find really exciting about mobility is the amount of innovation that's happening there right now. Um, on the housing and land use side, that that dramatically affects like how you can get around, but the, the innovation there is, is a little bit slower and, and happy to talk about that separately over or over beers another time. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, um, and I think with mobility, I think and, and micromobility specifically, like Micromobility is inspiring to me because it is affordable, sustainable, healthy, right? And really allows you to have that eyes on the street experience of what it's like to live in a city. Um, and I think that there are just stats that, that resonate with me on that point, I guess. So there's a stat um, about in New York City, if one in 20 people switch from driving their private automobile to taking, you know, the subway or a bike, you know, in a year, you would reduce GHG, you know, equivalent to planting trees like 1.3 or 1.4 times the size of uh, Manhattan. I'm just like, right. that's, I mean, that's, that's incredible when we think about, you know, future of cities, you know, future of our planet and and the kind of impact that just switching a mode can have. And generally in cities, the largest drivers of GHG are buildings emission and, and mobility needs. And so how do we provide people with a great option, affordable option, something that's fun, <laughs> right, that you want to be taking over and over again? Because I don't think that people in their daily lives make, you know, decisions that impact their day-to-day -day just because they want to be goody two-shoes, right? Like it's about mm -hmm. having something that, that serves as a great solution for you. Yeah. What's in it for me? Exactly. Yeah. Like starting from there. Um, the, the, you know, I, I think a lot about New York. I interviewed Frank Reed from, from Rebel and obviously they, they do e-mopeds, but they, they, you know, they, their business exploded yeah. in New York. And, and the feedback that I had from, from some people on Twitter was like, yeah, look, it's, you know, obviously e-moped's really interesting or bike share's really interesting. You know, city bike specific is obviously very interesting. It's one of the most successful ones in, in, in the US. But New York is its own kind of, um, it's an anomaly in terms of urban form in, in the US at least. And probably in a lot of um, sort of, you'd call them OECD countries, that <clears throat> in the sense that it's highly dense, it was built you know, you've got Manhattan, obviously, is highly dense environment. Even Brooklyn's very dense environment. 
Um, what's that intersection that you see between micromobility and urban planning regs? And because the thing that I can see is, as it, as it comes down the pipe is yes, we're going to start changing this and we're going to get more flow on that on our streets. And as you say, it's a better way to get around the city. Um, but that then needs to kind of cascade back to our, how we plan our cities, and um, that itself can take a long time. You know. It, do you see that starting to be part of the conversation in, in um, wider than New York as well? Yeah, um, maybe I can take that by talking about, you know, first, you know, other case studies that say it's, it's not just New York, <laughs> yes. right? Um, and then second, thinking about things like bike lanes and the curb, <laughs> right? And, and why those two things are, are really important. Um, so I, I think, you know, there are cities around the globe, and, and here's where, to your point, urban form and mobility options really intersect, right? We oftentimes talk about Copenhagen and Amsterdam, but people who live in big cities always say like, oh, but you know, they're much smaller cities, they're much more dense cities, that's not really relevant. Uh, and then you look at what London and Paris are doing right now, right, in terms of installing hundreds of miles of, of temporary bike lanes, and Hidalgo and Paris just got reelected on a platform to completely transform the streets. Um, and, you know, France, because it's France, is able to give also subsidies on e-bike purchases to anyone who lives in the suburbs of France to facilitate those longer trips. So I think that there are cities and models that suggest that, you know, this isn't, you know, just a New York thing or it doesn't just have to be a certain place thing, but it does take real investment in designing roads around uh, those kinds of experiences. And I think bike lanes on the curb are, are two important pieces of that. So the bike lane front, like, you know, bike lanes are intrinsically linked to bike ridership. We, we see that in the data. And I'm sure I'd be interested in your experience working for Uber and Jump. Like, I'm sure that you saw that in other markets as, as you know, like Jump was launching, right? That Jump is most successful when, you know, is in a market that had bike lanes, right? Same is true for, for most other cities. And, you know, why is that? Um, one, it's faster, but two, survey after survey, when we ask um, people who don't ride city bike why they don't ride, um, they say, you know, feelings of safety on New York City streets and specifically that they don't have enough protected bike lanes. Yeah. Um, right. And so I think that um, maybe bringing it to the, the Copenhagen example on, on bike lanes. In 2012, Copenhagen had, I think, 34 to 36% of its residents who commuted to work via bike. And they started to embark on a major investment in its bicycle lane network. Mm -hmm. And now 62% of people commute to work via bike in Copenhagen. <laughs> Just in that shorter time frame? Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And, and again, like we can say like Copenhagen isn't a model for bigger cities. Like it's not Houston. Right. But mm. if, if you're diligent about investing in the infrastructure and making it a great riding experience, then maybe if you start from 2%, you can get to 10%. Yes. <laughs> right. And if you start from 32% or 34%, you can get to 62%. Yeah. I think that kind of dramatic change is possible, but it means, um, really making deliberate decisions to really design, you know, what I, what I would call, um, and I think, you know, the urbanist space is calling streets for people, right? Streets that really, um, you know, focus on walking, biking, dining, <laughs> these other use cases that aren't just the, the private car. Yeah. So, yeah. And 
I don't know, when I think of, oftentimes people will say any change that's coming if it takes cars off the roads is, is bad for business, in quotes. Yes, <laughs> and, totally. And, and I think that when you actually look at the data in cities that have done great studies of this, for example, New York City did a study on the 9th Avenue bike lane, which is one of the first parking protected bike lanes done in the city and saw that retail businesses along 9th Avenue actually increased their sales by 49%. Right? Like, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty dramatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so these kinds of calls that when you transform streets that it has negative externalities on businesses or people in other ways, it's not necessarily true. And I think you can really see a city's priorities reflected in its curb space, right? And, and how that curb space works. I think in, in New York, we have... I think it's been cited around 3 million free curbside parking spaces. <laughs> and in total, about seven, 75% of the curb is private individual automobiles. 97% of that is free, which is how you get 3 million. Yes. Um, and as we start to think about making streets for people and kind of creating these dynamic, um, you know, people-shaped moments on the street, we need to think about reshaping that. Um, you know, City Bike, we, we worked with Cord and some of Cord's data sets to look at, you know, what share of the street does the City Bike occupy? Because as you can imagine, when we have community board meetings or talking to people who aren't as closely linked to micromobility as you and I are, the, the biggest thing that's raised is that City Bike takes away parking spaces. Yes. Um, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, how dare you? Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, it's so frustrating. But it's, it's so also, you know, if, you, if, you, if your mind is uh, everything is to be done in a car, then I can kind of understand why you'd be annoyed. It's just, it's just you're wrong, you know. Right, right. <laughs> which, which is why it's always interesting to bring it back to the data, too, because yes. city bike stations only occupy, you know, in our existing service area, 0.5% of the curb. Um, and then when we say, okay, that, that's interesting, that's a pretty small percentage of the curve, that means that there's still, you know, 99.5% of the curve for their uses. And we say, okay, well, how, and we turn a lens back on ourselves and say, well, how, how much utilization do we get for every car space that we're taking? <laughs> and on average, we see about 27 trips per day per like car space equivalent from where our stations would be compared mm-hmm. to, you know, small turnover rates of vehicles, maybe a generous estimate would be something like 2.5 turnover of, of a car in that same space. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's hard for me to look at that math and, and understand the, the car turnover math. Since on my block, I feel like people park and then they never leave, but yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's the aggregate. And like, I think in, in realizing it too, there's a great video that Luke Olson from Transportation Alternatives did a few years ago of a city bike station at Broadway and 22nd Street, where we had this great angle of looking at you know, at 5 p.m. on a Wednesday, the number of people taking out a bike or returning a bike versus the number of... <laughs> I saw this video. Did you see it? I, yeah, yeah. I mean, gee whiz, am I a nerd or what? I mean, I, I even saw that stuff. But yeah, no, I remember it. Just being like, yeah. that car has sat there for now, like one ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Yeah, how many uh, yeah. people have changed over. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. I love that time lapse because I... I, you know, I'm incredibly data driven, but like when you want to think about storytelling and getting people to understand those differences, that video is a hundred times more effective than me screaming that data from the rooftops. <laughs> completely, completely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no, I, I absolutely get it. Um, look, we, we, we get run up a little bit against time, but I do want to ask um, the sort of 
two things I want to kind of quickly cover off, which is one, um, obviously mobility as a service, Lyft is really playing in that space. And, and, and uh, you and I have talked yeah. about it in the past, but really like the, the, this, we, as we think about mobility as a service, uh, obviously Uber wants to compete and then, you know, you've got all the DOTs themselves wanting to get into that space. You know, how do you see that um, evolving? Like, do you think that it's going to be, who, who will end up driving it and where, where do you see the sort of um, the crux of, of, of kind of adop, user adoption is going to come from um, for, for getting people into, out of using their cars and into using something like a mobility as a service platform? Yeah. Um... I think it's a great question. I think about it all the time because like you, I'm watching so many different examples in addition to Lyft of, and, you know, of, of fits and starts. And I'm like, are we going to get there? Are we going to get there? Um, and I think on, on the Lyft side, I think one of the things that made me really excited that City Bike was part of Lyft was the fact that, you know, Lyft has bikes. In New York, we don't have scooters, but in other markets, there's scooters, there's rideshare, um, there's transit, um, Lyft has partnerships with transit agencies that cover about 80% of transit rides taken in the U.S. Um, and then there's actually walking directions in the app. Um, mm -hmm. And so when I put in a destination in the Lyft app, I can see like, okay, it's going to take me 19 minutes to get there by car um, through a ride chair. It's going to take me, I don't know, 40 minutes walking, but it's only going to take me 12 minutes biking or, yes. you know, whatever mode. And I'm able to also see the, the different prices. And so I, I think that one of the things that I found really interesting about being within Lyft, right, is thinking about Lyft, Lyft can make those trade-offs, right, as the operator and can show those choices and, and be agnostic about who's choosing. And so I think that that kind of autonomy is really exciting. I do think, though, when we think about what's the long-term future of mobility as a service, that, you know, public transit agencies have a really big role to play. And I'm really excited for what that role can be because to truly shift people away from the private automobile, not only do you have to have great choices, right? And I think like Lyft is offering great choices. There's others who are offering great choices, but you also need to incentivize people to make that move through things like congestion pricing, <laughs> right? Yes. And, and really kind of engaging in like deep transit partnerships of like, like I can imagine a future where, someone takes out a city bike and you get an immediate transfer to the bus, right? So like, yes. how can we make that kind of future happen? <laughs> right. And, and, and that's really where the public sector can really transform this sector in a way that I don't think any individual operator can. And so I'm excited to see, you know, what comes next there and, and what New York city can innovate on and, and cities around the world. Yeah. I agree with you. I, I, I just, my, my slight frustration is with waiting for those DOTs to do, to yeah. do that. And also that it's so distributed, right? That, that if New York manages to do it successfully, great, good on them, but that doesn't make it, that doesn't make a kind of a, a difference in every other city around the world. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's really, really any answer for this. It's just, I, I, it's a kind of a constant question that I have. And I think micromobility has a really important part to play in that. I think um, just to sort of, low cost but highly frequent and highly utilized vehicle that has you know sort of seamless levels of payment et cetera et cetera um that there's a real opportunity for them to really push um for push a lot of the innovation forward on that um but obviously it does it comes with all the other parts the planning the infrastructure et cetera yeah. et cetera et cetera um yeah. 
Yeah. It's hey. going to be an exciting space to watch. Oh, completely. <laughs> completely. Yeah, and, and, and be a part of it for both of us. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, the, the final question that I have is just I know a lot of people are curious about. Um, obviously, in New York, we're recording this in uh, late uh, July. Um, how's COVID impacted uh, what, what's been going on there? How, what are you seeing? What's interesting, et cetera? Yeah. Um, a lot, actually a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, I would say just in general, in terms of what the changes have looked like, um, overall ridership is down compared to, you know, quote unquote, normal periods of 2019, which has been pretty consistent with, you know, other sectors of transportation that are down, but bike share has been less impacted than say other, you know, modes of transportation that really focus on commutes, like public transit, for example. Um, there was a recent study by the urban planning group, Sam Schwartz, that looked specifically in New York City at New York subway usage and, and city bike um, and showed that, for example, you know, subway ridership in March fell 92%, um, city bike ridership fell 66%. Um, and then in May, when we look at subway ridership, it's still, you know, you know very low in terms of like 89% of, of what it would have been before versus city bike had only fallen um, 20%. And when I look at then our June numbers compared to 2019, we're only behind about 10% of where we were before. Um, wow. so when you look and that's at, with a bit of an exodus <laughs> in the city as well, right? Like generally not everybody's going back to work, et cetera, et cetera. So different yeah. use patterns, et cetera, I'd imagine. Yeah, completely different use patterns. Um, I, I think it's been surprising to me because that 80-20 of, you know, largely being used for commuting and then some leisure, right? Now everyone's for the most part using it for leisure outside of programs that we have for critical workers um, and that we did in partnership with the city during COVID. Um, you know, a lot of like the volume that we're seeing is due to people taking a trip after work. And I think that's showing in the data in some really interesting ways, like, um, the popularity of stations serving major hospitals, like those are some of our, have been during COVID, some of our most popular stations. Um, we have bike valets stood up there to make sure that, you know, doctors and nurses are getting there okay. We, we started a program with New York City DOT at the beginning of COVID called the Critical Worker Program to support about 30,000 critical workers across hospital, transit, you know, first responders, like, uh, you know, nonprofit sectors and others who, who needed to get into work. And so I think we've seen that ridership uh, spike. And then we've seen ridership spike near leisure areas. So some of the stations near the West Side Highway and Greenways um, are incredibly high. And we've also, do that critical worker program, seen actually a huge gender swap in New York, or not swap, but an increase in gender in a way that you know, bike share doesn't typically see such huge swings. So we've actually increased five percentage points in terms of female riders compared to this time last year due to, you know, the critical worker program actually had about 60% women in it, which kind of correlates to the percentage of women in hospital programs. And then, yeah, just other, you know, interesting things at the margins, you know, trip ride durations have increased. Um, and I think that's, you know, people are taking bikes out for a leisure trip to, to a park or for a longer trip to get into the office where they don't feel comfortable taking another mode. And we've seen things like trips that start and stop at the same station, the percentage of that triple, which is something that we call joy rides. Yeah. <laughs> right? so, you're, <laughs> so you're taking a bike out and then returning it back just because you wanted to, to get out later in the day. And other things like, 
you know, I spoke earlier about the fact that City Bike typically sees these two peaks in the morning um, and in the evening, right, aligned to commuting patterns. We still have a bump in the morning, which are people who are essential or critical workers going back to work. But now there's this mound of ridership that starts to build, you know, from 5 p.m. onwards as people start to come off of work and want to go and explore the city or start to go to some of the open restaurants that have been opening across New York and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. It has also surprised me how resilient that system is. And one of the, you know, I, I think a lot about the independent, a lot of the independent dockless companies obviously like couldn't get back out on the street. Whereas something yeah. like where you guys, it's like, wow, we're kind of, you're contracted, you're able to, so did you have any period where it was completely like nobody could ride? No, we, we stayed open the entire period and same with all of the, the, um, with bike share systems, um, across the country. Yeah. Um, interesting. Okay. It's, it's actually one of the nice benefits of docked systems, right? Like we have a dock system, you know, even if utilization is low, it's there and available for people to use. Mm-hmm. getting back to those benefits and just to your point, like our deep kind of longstanding commitment to the cities that, that we work with. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited. You said resiliency, which I think has been a word that's been very top of mind for me because <laughs> yeah. we think about, you know, New York city has been so hard hit by, by COVID the resiliency of the city, the resiliency of like, you know, people starting to come back to riding and then, I think a lot about what comes next with that resiliency and how do we make sure that some of these great, you know, behaviors continue into the future. And when I'm looking at that, there's, you know, there's the ITDB studies coming out of China showing this huge increase in bicycling of 150%. There's also studies from New York in the past of times when there were transit strikes or post-Hurricane Sandy and a lot of people switched to cycling that actually persisted after those crises were over. Mm-hmm. So I think when I'm thinking about what comes next and what are the ways that people you know, want to move around and you know, are going to have fun moving around, like I'm, I'm really bullish on, on biking being one of those dominant forms yep. and, and still deeply believe in, in the coming bike boom across our cities. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Well, hey, look, uh, we're really uh, up against time, but I want to just say thank you so much. It's been such an amazing chat. Um, and I really love yeah. what you guys do. I've used, uh, when I was in New York, used a lot of City Bike and, and I love the product as well. Uh, yeah. Small champion <laughs> down here <laughs> on the other side of the world. <laughs> um, how many bike share systems have you tried or uh, bike mobility systems around the world? You counted? Uh, I bet it's incredible. I haven't actually counted, but I, but you know, <laughs> I, I try to use every option that's available in every city that I go to. And I, yeah. travel, I you know, pre-COVID, I was traveling through a bit. So, yeah, um, yeah probably in the, you know, 20, 25, something like that. I don't know exactly off the top of my yeah. head. But, that's, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. You can be the Elan of bike share. Yeah. <laughs> on micromobility. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it coming. <laughs> oh, oh, well, actually, the, the, I think that title belongs to uh, Michael Nucker, who is just like, he's beyond me. Yeah, he really is like a total nerd on this stuff. He's, you know, individual m- models of scooters and stuff. He'll like pick out the sort of very oh, incredible details and stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. <laughs> um, cool. Well, look, hey, Marlis, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And um, look forward to having you on, hopefully in the near future as well. Yeah, thank you, Oliver. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. It was really fun to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks.